good morning, beautiful people. Welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk. I'm delighted this morning because I get to have my soror, Ryan Lindsay Arendelle. Um, she's an Emmy Award winning uh, journalist. She's a preacher and entrepreneur. Uh, she is also serving as the acting senior pastor at uh, Spring Glen UCC in Hamden. She just graduated from YDS, but she's going to be with us for another year because she's picking up some more degrees. <laughs> and she has a she has an amazing book out which I meant to grab in my room and I didn't grab. I damn it. <laughs> but anyway, she's gonna be here. She's she's here. She's gonna talk to us about uh why the book, a little bit about her life, so we get to know something about her and uh and her call to ministry, which is uh her centered passion at the moment. So good morning, sister. Good morning, Bass. How you doing? I'm so glad you could be here with me. Thank you for having me. I feel honored. I'm honored. So how are you? How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm starting this early workout thing. So <laughs> made it to the gym, I think by 630. So it feels, <laughs> I'm like, all right, praise God for longer days because we can slide in a little nap after a while. But I'm feeling hi, good. Hi. I used to be an early morning gym rat back in the day. Oh, I don't know if I go back to that. So, so where are you from, Lindsay? I am from Washington, D.C. Um, I'm an uptown shorty, so Northwest D.C. Um, my mother's side is from D.C., so that's always been home for me. Uh, we did move around a bit when I was younger. So I lived in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, like in the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. And then we did a brief stint in Raleigh, North Carolina, which my paternal grandfather was there. And then when my parents got um, separated and divorced, we moved back to the DMV um, in 2001. So actually my 11th grade or, or 11th day or 10th day of, of fifth grade was September 11th, which was pretty wild. So wow. quite a time that, yeah. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. Okay. So so, so you went to high school in D in DC, technically Montgomery County. <laughs> okay, <laughs> don't all right. Send for, don't send for me. No, um, I, we, my brother and I were the first generation not to go to DC public schools on my mom's side, and I was salty about that because I really wanted to. I mean, I, I of course DC is mine to claim, but not having that DC public schools experience, I wish I could have. Um, but yeah, we so just outside of DC in Silver Spring, Maryland, is where I went okay. to high school. Mm-hmm. And where'd you go to undergrad? Undergrad I did at Northwestern. Um, I studied uh, broadcast journalism and African-American studies. So that was my first time in the Midwest. Um, and that is where I pledged Delta. Shout out to the Theta Alpha chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you always knew you wanted to be in journalism. Like what was it about? Because you, you, you're a journalist. That's right. <laughs> okay. And so how old were you wanted to be a journalist? Like, how did you come to journalism? Yeah, when I was little, I was always writing, um, whether it was poetry or short stories. Um, I was always curious, asking a lot of questions, um, wanting to just know about people and things and the world and how people thought um, their own stories. And then in high school, what, what had happened was, um, I was in Spanish. I had taken 
three, four years. I took four years of French from sixth grade through ninth grade. And then I was like, okay, uh, my, my French teacher was flip flopping and she was teaching the low, like the lower levels instead of the higher levels. So I was like, okay, I don't want to take French with anybody else. So I was like, I'm done. So I said, Oh, I'll take Spanish and God bless our classroom because I feel like it really took like two weeks to get from two weeks to learn the alphabet. Cause we were going from like Ebonics to English to Spanish <laughs> And my Spanish teacher was Jamaican, very fluent, but not a good teacher. So I was just like, I'm wasting time in here. So I switched into journalism my sophomore year of high school. And that was kind of it. Um, DC had some incredible programs. There was one that I did for two years called the Urban Journalism Workshop. And so the first year I did TV. So we were on the campus of American University, just making news stories. Um, when the museum, rest in peace, when the museum first opened up, we got in the studio and did our broadcast there for our final project. And the following year I did radio and had also rest in peace, um, Tashima Walker, who was the executive producer of Tell Me More with Michelle Martin. And so she would always be in my ass about being late. (laughs) That was a strong black woman who didn't take no stuff. Um, But that was just a really incredible experience to be working with NPR journalists and editors and people who just had this very solid experience. So that shaped, that shaped a lot. Um, my experiences a lot and gave me really a, a strong foundation, but also my, my high school was a um, fine arts and humanities high school. So we had a really solid broadcast TV studio. I wrote for the paper, my junior uh, and senior year. So that foundation and that hunger for storytelling was there pretty early. Um, and then didn't actually know a lot about Northwestern. My mom put that on my radar and really enjoyed the trip out there, um, Madil just had a lot to offer. Um, and so I just, I just, and they had really solid financial aid. So that's where I ended up. Mm-hmm. And so, so you get your degree in communications, journalism, what is it in? Uh, I have a bachelor's in journalism and I have a master's in journalism as well. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so you graduate, you graduate and you go work for. So was it, it was a, I don't know. I don't know if you, circuitous is not probably not the right word my family has this running joke of be like Ryan will just throw a big word in a sentence and hope that it lands <laughs> I'm always like I used to my grandpa got me a little one of those little um dictionaries like you pun you know you type in the word a digital dictionary so I had that and before that I had a little pocket dictionary so I would just as I was reading I'd come across words I would just make lists and then eventually I'll look them up or sometimes not so um but so I graduated in 2013 and my grandfather was sick. Um, he had a late stage diagnosis of um, cancer. And so I was like, you know, journalism will be there. And so I just came home and I was working at J. Crew on 9th and F in DC, um, downtown and or Chinatown, I guess. Um, and then that was around the time it was the 50 anniversary of the March on Washington um, for jobs and justice. So my church at the time um, was participating and, you know, had a, a group growing. And so I made this sign with, uh, it said Emmett, Emmett and Amadou and Sean and Oscar and Trayvon more than just, I think, Black faces and tragic spaces. So a lot of, a lot of people would just stop me and ask to take a picture of the sign. And I had the, the, in, the ampersand with dots on the bottom of the sign. Um, so I just kind of, I remember I then wrote those names on a post-it note and just kind of rode around in my car with it until I finally was like, I think I'm going to make this a shirt. And so I had a homie who 
is he's an entrepreneur. He's like a renaissance man, I'd say. He has his hands in a lot of different things in DC. And I approached him and was like, all right, can you like sponsor these, you know, first a hundred shirts? So we, we made a deal and I sold them at this music festival that's called Broccoli City Fest in 2014 in April. So I think I sold through like 50 of those first 100 shirts the first day and then put the rest up online. Um, so that kind of, that the brand was called Gloss Rags, the shirts was called the In Counting um, Collection. And then I had this like alter ego that I fashioned for myself that started with the nickname, which was Randy Gloss, um, that some friends in Brooklyn gave me. And so I was like being Randy real heavy for a few years. Um, and then I, around, man, the list, the list just kept getting longer. Um, and I eventually the, like the stopped. List, the list for names on the shirt. Yeah, we were memorializing. Yeah. The first six we had Emmett, Amadou, Sean, Oscar, Trayvon, Jordan, and um, Mike and well, yeah, Emmett, Amadou, Sean. That's right. And then we added Mike Brown and Ezel Ford and Eric Garner this summer by August of 2014. So we started in April of that year and then added more names. And in that same August, we rolled out a list of women's names and women, black women and girls. And it just kept, it just kept growing. Um, and I didn't realize at the time, like how much of a toll that was taking on me and my mental health. Um, but I just kept at it. And then I remember by the time Freddie Gray was murdered, which was 2015 or 16, the list was at the bottom of the shirt. There were like 17 names. So then when Alton and Philando were murdered, their names had to go in the back. And so um, the top of 2016, I was experiencing a lot of anxiety and depression because of the business. And I didn't necessarily feel like my life was at a standstill, but I think it felt like I, I was overwhelmed with something that I had created um and didn't really know what to do about it because it had brought me a level of kind of success and visibility that I wasn't anticipating but meanwhile I was like working at my high school as an in-school suspension coordinator and then one of my homegirls my profite um Naima she was really for two years she had been like come out come check out Berkeley come check out Berkeley and I was like mm, I don't want to go to grad school huh I don't want to take the GRE. And she's like, Berkeley doesn't have the GRE. <laughs> so not to the SAT three times. So I was just like, so I go out, get flewed out and really loved it and applied. And it was wild. It was like, I, had, I was coming back from New York and I was sitting down with um, Akai Gurley's cousin. He was a young man who was fatally shot by um, a Chinese police officer, Peter Liang, in the stairwell of the pink houses in New York. And she had reached out and was had thanked me because she said a lot of people kind of glaze over my cousin. He's not one of the bigger names. So we met up in New York and talked for a while. And I missed my bus back to D.C. So I was coming late. And then I just like I remember calling out of work <laughs> and then I'm like in bed. I'm like and when I woke up, when I wake up, it smells like I've had like six packs. Of <laughs> so I'm like, hello. I'm like, who's calling me? And so <laughs> that was like my acceptance call for Berkeley was like that morning that I had just got back from New York and called out and I was like, oh, wow. So then I started school, I guess, August of 2016, graduated May of 2018, and then moved to um, Connecticut to for a two-year fellowship where I was working with the NPR member station co covering exclusively guns. It was called Guns and America. 
So I was down in Hartford um, doing that. And so that's kind of like, there's so many like little details and little stories along the way, but that's kind of a semi-quick synopsis. Okay. So, so I get the journalism part. Mm-hmm. I get the entrepreneurial part. So where does ministry come into all of this? Yes, ministry um, maybe had been lurking. I found this sheet of paper that I'll, I'm going to text it to you after this so you can have a look, but it had two columns and it said, I want to be, and I want to be. And there were a mix of things like, you know, adjectives, verbs, nouns, like safe, secure, strong. Then it was like Jamaican, <laughs> thick, homecoming queen, a champion <laughs> eater, shredding the slopes and Olympic gold medals. Like there's all these things on this, on, the, on this list. And then right in the middle, right dead center, it said a preacher. And I was like, Okay, clearly 15 or 16 year old me knew something that I didn't that, you know, that I either forgot about maybe in my 20s or maybe it was just like having to take this really. I wouldn't necessarily I mean, bumpy at times, but just this very interesting journey to my calling. Um, But it was was difficult. The shift was unanticipated because I thought that I was going to be a journalist for the rest of my life. I got a master's so I could teach on the collegiate level because there were. It was beautiful seeing Black faculty in journalism at Northwestern. Um, that made a huge difference and inspired me to want to, you know, be able to be that professor and that journalist for not just Black, I mean, Black students, of course, but also just to show other folk, like, we're out here just as much as y'all are. Um, and our stories are powerful and the ways that we tell stories are powerful. But um, there was a police shooting in Weathersfield, uh, a young man, Puerto Rican teenager by the name of Anthony Jose Vega Cruz, his nickname was Chulo, was fatally shot by a Haitian American police officer who had a, a very troubled kind of history um, in the sense that he, we, you know, got his records. And when he was a part of the Manchester police force in Connecticut, um, his supervisor, one of his supervisors said, I'm, I'm concerned that he will either harm himself or harm somebody. And so somehow he got rehired in Weathersfield and ended up killing this teenager. And so then became this like really wild situation where, you know, the good good folks in my job, their white allyship and white progressiveness was really put to the test because I was the only black reporter on staff, um, only black person in the newsroom at that time. And this was um, 20, I think it was 2019. And I at a I, I I spoke briefly about police accountability and transparency at a community forum that was about police accountability and transparency. And all of a sudden everything changed. And I just felt so silenced and the level of comfort that I felt at my job just evaporated so quickly. And I was, it was a terrible feeling to be made to feel like I'm a problem. Um and so then I just remember like just crying so many day, like days and nights after work, before and after work and asking God if I did something wrong and God said, no. And he said, I got you. And so then it was around that time that I visited um, Yale Divinity School and then decided to apply and got in and just, you know, held that acceptance close to my chest for a while um, and eventually told my boss because you know how the fiscal year works. I was like, it's a grant funded position. So if y'all want to 
keep me, then they're going to try and find money to keep me um, after the grant funding ended. But I was like, I don't want them to do that work while I know that I'm leaving um, journalism. So that was a, it was a difficult time for a lot of reasons. It was a difficult adjustment because I had just gotten a master's. <laughs> I was like, we doing more school, God. And I really didn't know much about divinity school, to be quite honest, or seminary. Um, so, but I just said, okay, if this is what you're calling me to do, I'll go. So, so when did you, what did you win the Emmy for? We won the Emmy for a, a documentary about the shooting about, okay. Um, but I felt very jaded by that because I, it felt like, honestly, like in the, in the way that is it Zora Neale Hurston who says that black women are the mules of the, of the world or of the earth. Um, mm -hmm. that I really, you know, the, the police officer that fairly shot the teenager was black and I set up the interviews with his lawyer, with his high school football coach, his Sunday school teacher, his pastor, and did not get to see the documentary until two or three days before the public did, didn't, wasn't allowed to have any input in the, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, crafting of the narrative is not quite the best language only because journalism pretends to be, you know, non, non-biased, but, you know, I, I didn't have any say in how the documentary turned out. And that was very hurtful for a lot of different reasons. Um, because I know it couldn't have happened without my work to broker these relationships, develop some level of trust to allow, you know, these folks to, to sit down with us, um, especially in such a vulnerable set of circumstances um so that was really hurtful but yeah that's that's what we want to emmy for um i also got an award from the connecticut society of professional journalists for a series i did on a shooting um involving three uh well two teenagers two black boys from hartford and then um a 24 year old so i got a couple <laughs> couple of awards so <laughs> Not the so you find yourself at yds a journalist a newly mid, fresh out, just st still in the journalistic world, and you're thrown into YDS, which is a whole other world that you didn't know anything about. What was that like? It was wild because for a lot of different reasons. One of them is that we were online entirely. So I go from having my like living room be my newsroom during the pandemic, during lockdown, to then it being my classroom. <laughs> and just sitting on Zoom in intro to theology or Black theology or pastoral care, which is such a strange learning environment. Um, and I felt like, I definitely felt in, in intro to theology in particular, I felt like a fish, a fish out of water because I was like, I don't know who Athanasius is or what's the other A? I forget his name. The people that they, he's, he's, he is Black. He's North African. I forget his name. Some theologian. and you know, it shows you how much I retained from that class. Um, but it was wild. But then I also felt like knowing my brain, I was like, I'm going to take the good thing about YDS is that they don't have like a class sequence, really. It's not like you have to take this class your first year and then this year, second, and that year, third. You can kind of choose your own adventure to an extent. And so I was like, if I'm going to take these classes, I'm going to take what is going to keep my interest. So I took Black theology with Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman. I took, um, Black preaching with uh, Dr. Danielle McCray. And then pastoral care was decent and it was helpful. Um, 
but it was, it was just interesting. I was just like, what's going on? <laughs> and I think about, I just moved to campus in August for my third year. And I was like, how was I writing papers alone in my home, like by myself? And I think, cause when I was here this year, I was just like, you know, so you see people in the library or I don't really go to the library, but you know, people around campus writing, working, laboring together. And I was like, I was doing this solo. Like that's crazy to me. <laughs> But here so, we are. <laughs> so, so, so part of your YDS experiences calls you to, uh, to, to be in somebody's church. And, uh, and right now you are the uh, acting senior pastor, pastor at Spring Glen UCC, which I'm a UCC. I, I've come to hear you preach and you are a very fine preacher. So talk about, about, talk a little bit about, because you're not UCC, you're, you're, uh, I'm in DC. <laughs> Pardon? Progressive National Baptist. Oh, I didn't even know there was such a thing. So once upon a time, are you are you created that? You creating that? Like you are sh sh shepherding people to that? Because I've never heard of progressive and Baptist in the same sentence. Yeah, I need to get my dates right. But basically, what had happened was there was National Baptist, and then even though how we're taught history is such that we're taught to believe what the narrative is that. The Black church was always on board with the civil rights movement, that it was the hub of organizing um, in the revolution at the time. But really, there was a lot of tension um, because mm -hmm. there were some Black folks who just felt like there was too much to risk, too much on the line for them to really be fully involved because there was violence, even with, um, you know, non, or what is it called? I guess nonviolent act activism, um, yeah. the marching, things like that, where they were not physically engaging with um they were just protesting there was not any interaction with with the with police or or clan or anything like that they were really being attacked so there was a group of clergy and church folk who said we're down with king and his brand of activism and then there was another group that were like we're not down and so when they split NBC was not down and progressive PNBC was down with King and the civil rights movement. And so that's how that came about, but it was a big deal. Um, it was a big, it was a big deal at the time when it happened. So I want to say it was maybe the early seventies. I need to look that up, but so that's what I'm, I'm a part of PNBC, but this also was, God literally was like here <laughs> with, with Spring Glen because I wasn't, I was trying to I was like, I need you to stop ducking, dodging, like trying to run back to these things you used to do. Like I used to be a camp counselor. So I had applied and used to work in hospitality. I applied to like work for the Yale Young Global Scholars Program as like a res uh, life manager for the summer is like eight weeks. I was like, yeah, it'll get me through the summer. Cool, cool, cool. I was like, here's a church. <laughs> what? And so I just, I did not apply for this job. Like I really, I had an interview, of course, you know, sent my materials over and then it was pretty much a done deal. So I was like, Lord, I guess you did answer my prayers. <laughs> Cause you did hear that I, that I wanted to preach regularly. <laughs> um, but it's been, it's been a solid experience um, learning a lot. It's a lot to actively be in transition while like in front of people, like I'm preaching about it this Sunday, but you know, Saul didn't have the luxury of transforming in private. Like when he became Paul, Everyone was like, wasn't that the dude that was just like running after trying to murder Christians yesterday? <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's just this trans new name, you know, 
he's riding for Christ. And I was just like, so I kind of feel that in a sense, because I know there's this deep internal transition that's, or transformation that's happening while I'm also every Sunday in front of a white congregation (laughs) as a 32 year old black woman who also has a different denominational and like spiritual formation. So it's been, it's been interesting, but the people, the people at the church are are sweet and earnest. um, And just, you know, I think wanting to, I, they're appreciative um, of a new voice in the space and kind of a new way of doing things. And there's also the say so. Yeah, there's also a safety net. They're like, she only here till Labor Day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've heard you preach. I think you're amazing. I I, I've heard from people in the church, and they adore you. They think you are an incredible young woman, and they love uh, your message, and they love the way that you bring the word to them. So, um, so you got that, and then if that's not enough. That's not enough. You have a book, which is in its uh, editing edited stages, right? Uh, and you had a whole talk at Possible Futures Bookstore here in New Haven uh, about the the journey of this book and what it has meant to you. So I, I want you because we we've got about uh, I don't know like less than ten minutes. I want to talk about this book and 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 what compelled you to write it. Did you always know you wanted to write this book? Uh, how did it show up for you? That was also a so. I was really kind of living like a dual life. Like while I was at um, Berkeley, I really didn't talk about Randy. Like my whole social media was Randy Gloss, but I just didn't, I was like, no, I don't have Instagram. If somebody asked me, like I had a reporter for when I was on Twitter, but I got reached, um, someone reached out and was like, do you want to, we want you to do a TED talk, um, TEDx Mid-Atlantic back in DC. So I was like, okay. And so I thought about this, the, the theme of Ted, Ted was superpower. So I was like, okay, I think my superpower is empathy. And so I started talking about the empathy that I developed just being immersed in this world of black death and black trauma because of gloss rags. But then I was like, oh, I had a, developed a new level of empathy for women and, and birthing folk who chose, who choose abortion or who have abortion, abortions um, because, I had, because I had one. So I was pregnant with twins when I was out in the Bay. I had a portion of my third day of grad school at Berkeley. It was a Wednesday, August 31st, 2016. And that just shifted everything for me. So, so yeah. So then I'm on this stage a, a year and some change later doing this TED Talk that weaves together both narratives of both, you know, losing, losing a child uh, because of white supremacy, but then also choosing to forfeit having children if, if you can if I can phrase it like that. Um, and then afterwards, there were just so many women who came up to me and were like, thank you. Um, that was me five years ago. That was me 10 years ago. Some women were encouraging me that you're still, you know, you're going to be, be able to become a mom again, if you want, you know, when time is right. So I had, that was the beginning. That was October, 2017, when I was like, okay, like God was like, yeah, we need a book. And I was like, and then I've always written to process so I just had poems everywhere, poems and notebooks on a piece of paper on my phone. A lot of times when I couldn't sleep, just especially in the first like year or so after having the abortion, I just would write or poems would come to me, you know, in the middle of the night. And so then I just started um, putting this book together and I applied for a writer, a 
writer's residency, I think it was the summer of 2018, didn't get it, but it was still worthwhile because it made me put all, collect all my poems and see, okay, I got about, you know, 30 or however many it was at the time. And then I don't remember when I started where the idea came from to include some of my journal entries. Um, but I do remember my friend, Adrian, he's an artist and amazing photographer being like, yeah, you should just cut up your journal. And I was like, that is blasphemous. <laughs> I would never. <laughs> I and know. Now, every, time, every time you tell that story, I get chills. I'm like, oh God, I, I don't even know if I could do that. <laughs> yeah, I felt, I felt. And then I was like, one day I was just like, let's go. Like I'm with it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I cut up my journals, um, and my journal and scanned um, different entries from that 2016 to 2017 period and did these redactions by hand. And so that gives a new dimension to the book as well, apart from the poetry and prose. So the long answer is no, I didn't know I was going to write a book. I never wanted to, I never imagined myself, one, having an abortion and two, writing a book about my abortion <laughs> um, and other things. Uh, so, yeah. And when, were the, when, were the, when are you expecting the release of the book? I want to say August at the latest. I the challenge with self-publishing is that there's just it's really falls on you to get it across the finish line. So there's just I'm I've been done writing for some time now. It's really just some formatting issues that I'm working through, but that will soon be resolved so it can be out in the world. Um because it's it's time. It's really time. Mm-hmm. So as we we wrap up our wonderful conversation, but we always have wonderful conversations because you've been on the porch and I've seen you around and we've been at events. And so I'm getting to know you very well. So what does, what is it that uh, Ryan wants? What is the, what is the biggest dream for yourself? Well, um, the first thing that comes to mind is family. I want a family. Uh, (laughs) I'd love to have twins again. Um, I want to have a really loving husband (laughs) and (laughs) And I also want to, I want to be able to help people heal. I think that this, there's, there's certain pages in the book that are just, you know, an implicit invitation to journal. So this question says, what would telling your friends about your abortion sound like? And then it's just a blank page. And so it was really an invitation to just process. Um, But I think there's just having to keep some, a a life-changing choice, a secret is really hard to say the least. And I don't, and the caring secrets become such a burden um, because it's hiding a, a piece of who you are and it's an experience that this, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but having an abortion shaped me tremendously, but also birthed a beautiful ministry where I can be 10 toes down in the pulpit saying, yes, I had an abortion. No, I do not believe that it was a simple choice. I know God's with me and for me and that never changed. Um, and that's really powerful. And I think that's a message that not just folks inside the church need to hear, but outside as well. Um, especially in this day and age where abortion as a healthcare choice is being stigmatized and being co-opted into a decision, a decision about morality, which I'm not on board with. Hmm. So I, I, I want to be able to help people heal. I want to also experience healing more healing and more joy through my future family um my brother's kids keep me on my toes my niece she's five and she lost her first tooth 
And so my mom texted me. She's like, you got to call your brother. Ask him what, you know, tell him the story about Naomi losing her tooth. So b- before she goes to bed, she's like, daddy, um, I can't really go to sleep. How, how is the tooth fairy going to put this money under my pillow? And he's like, just go to sleep as usual. He's like, but I don't want to miss her. He's like, she'll be there. Next morning, she wakes up. She's got some quarters under her pillows and she go downstairs and she goes, daddy, are you sure the tooth, the tooth fairy is real? And he's like, yeah. He's like, because... These are coins. She said, mommy has coins in her purse. <laughs> she said, I don't, he said, well, yeah, there's other, you know, other currencies, other countries that use coins that are actually a do- dollar. She goes, no, daddy, the tooth fairy, the tooth fairy deals in dollars. <laughs> and she's fine. <laughs> she is hilarious. I'm, I'm kind of with her. I'm kind of with her for that though. <laughs> Absolutely. She she knew something was up. She was like, I don't know about these quarters. Like I was looking for the five, maybe, you know. That's it. I'm, I'm shaking down a tooth fair. I thought I was going to get a windfall. So yeah. So no, children before, they just bring so much joy. And so I'm excited to see kind of that that iteration as well. But um I'm also here for the journey to to motherhood, the journey of healing. Uh it's never a destination, but those are the things that I would hope. And and also I think just that when you when we think about like legacy, it was interesting. So we were at the Fred, Frederick Douglass thing and um, that statement, that line where it was like, your evil remains, but your, your goodness like is interred with your bones. Mm-hmm. But I don't want my goodness to be buried. You know, I want my goodness and the love that I can show to people to last. And so that's really what I would hope is that when people maybe think about me when I'm gone, that like, oh, Ryan, she really knew how to love, love on people, um, even, even when it's difficult. Sometimes love is like, I, I, because I love you, I have to say this to you. And it, you might not want to hear it, might, might, might make you uncomfortable. But because I love you, I have to say that. And that's true in preaching. That's true in your personal life, professional life. But, you know, I think telling the truth is a loving and revolutionary act. I agree. And uh, I always tell people it starts with telling myself the truth first before I can tell anybody else a damn That's thing. It. So, well, I'm so glad that you got to come on and talk to me this morning. Uh, we have all summer together because I know I'll see you. The next year. We have a whole year. <laughs> a whole year before you go off to parts unknown and uh, and do the thing that Ryan is called to do. Uh, I, as I say to people, I serve a God that calls and sends. So I know you serve a God that calls and sends that will call you or send you somewhere. So, so I, I'm, I'm delighted we had a chance to have this conversation. I look forward to many more conversations with you. Thank you, Babs. It's been a joy and I appreciate you so much. All right. I will see you in these streets. Don't you worry. Come by. I will. I will. <laughs> Come on by. All right, everybody. That's a Thursday. It was a good word. And it was my joy to have a, uh, my sorrow, Ryan Lindsay, here today to talk about her journey. So I'll be back tomorrow, Friday, in the Elm. Y'all be cool out there. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Paul. I'll see y'all tomorrow. Bye, Ryan. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>